0: Hey, my name is Steve Serval. If you've uh, not met me or seen me before, it's good to see you. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Today, we're going to continue in our series on prayer. Over the last couple weeks, Chad has brought us through uh, a couple uh, weeks of understanding why we pray, uh, why it matters, and kind of eventually kind of what we should pray for. Today, I I just really want to compel to you the evidences and evidences in Scripture that not only is prayer an intricate part of the Christian life, but it is the primary vehicle that God uses to bring intimacy and closeness into our relationships with Him. That I believe that there is a direct correlation between a significant struggle that many Christians have with God being a personal reality in their own lives and our disassociation with the practice of prayer that we believe that God is an infinite good God. We love Him, we trust Him, but we lack, we lack the physical evidences in our life to fully surrender to His will. And I think this is directly linked to our inability to take serious God's design for prayer in our life. So today, what I would like to do is to walk through a few pieces of Scripture and draw some conclusions about those passages, and then I would like to kind of talk about some real issues that face us, some hurdles that face us in our prayer life. And I want to end by giving you some thoughts about how we make this maybe a cornerstone in our life. But before we head into a time to talk about prayer, it probably makes sense to take some time to pray. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for um, today. I thank you for an opportunity to hear your word and to speak your Lord. Lord, I just pray for my words, God, that they would be from you, that your spirit would be with us in this room. I know it is. God, will you be with our hearts. Will you stir up in us an openness to hearing your word and letting it define areas of our life to move in. So Father, we praise you for today. We thank you for who you are. We pray this in the, the awesome name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So we're just gonna jump right into our Jeeps here and drive. We're gonna go through Luke 10. So Luke 10, we're going to go verses 38 through 42, is in your bulletin, it's on the screen, and feel free to use your Bibles to come along with us. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she, she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I think it would be a, I don't know if it's fun, but an interesting exercise to kind of pick out which person in that story do you most often connect with. Are you a Mary that really enjoys being in front of Jesus, spending time at his feet, you're complacent, you love it, or maybe you're Martha who gets caught up in all the distractions and tasks of life? If I was to form a hypothesis, I would think many of us in this room would probably identify more so with Martha. I'm a Martha, right? that does not give you permission, okay, to call me Martha, however, okay? (laughs) I have people still calling me guac, all right? I don't know if you remember that, okay? So, what Jesus is reminding Martha in this verse is this, the greatest possession is close fellowship with the Lord as one's portion in life. The greatest possession is close fellowship with the Lord as one's portion in life. The most precious, meaningful, satisfying, object, thing, possession is closeness with God. And I don't, I believe this. I believe that we believe this. I believe that we believe this because I think that most of us would agree that the best stretches of our lives were the ones that associated themselves when we felt closest to God. Mary does something right here. And she leads Jesus to compel us that time with Him is the good portion in our lives. Spending time with Jesus through our prayers and our meditation is ultimately what will bring true intimacy and relationship with our Father. This is true of our earthly relationships. The ones that you pour into the most, the ones that you invest into the most, the one relationships that you care for The most are the ones that mean the most to you, right? They're the ones that you get the most out of. So how much better is a close relationship with a sovereign God than an earthly creature? Asaph, who is a choir director for David, writes in Psalm 73 some beautiful words where he says, that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The greatest possession is close fellowship with the Lord as one's portion in life. This story compels us to understand that spending time with Jesus in prayer is what will bring us intimacy with Him. We should do it based upon that alone. But we have some more evidences. Luke 18, the, the parable of the persistent widow The most important sentence in that parable is the first one. It tells us it's the key. It's the meaning to that passage. It says that we ought to pray and not lose heart. That we ought to pray and not lose heart. God, in this parable, is requesting that we bother him with our request. God is requesting that we bother him with our request. Matthew Henry, who is a brilliant commentary writer, writes this. It is our privilege to pray. It is our duty to pray. We should pray. It is to be our consistent work. We should always pray. We should pray and continue to pray until our prayers are swallowed up in eternal praise. The Christian's life is to be marked by prayer. Paul writes about it eloquently, eloquently in Romans 12 when he's talking about true marks of a Christian life. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be sinful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he reiterates this. Rejoice Always Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Prayer is not just a grand idea. It's not just a good exercise to do. It's not an option for the believer. It is necessary for our vitality in our walks with Jesus. Oswald Chambers, who's a genius, writes this, he says, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. So from these passages, I want us to come to understanding that prayer offers us the most substantial life possible. And that knowing that we should pray fervently and constantly. But this, is, this issue of knowing we should pray is not what I believe is the issue In our prayer lives. I believe all of us in here would say, I should pray. So what are the issues that keep us from having success in our prayer life? What are the issues that cause so many of us to have poor prayer lives, so many of us to lack intimacy with the Father? I believe one of the biggest problems is is that we don't fully know how to get there. We don't fully know how to get there. There are many of us in this room that have lost traction in this area. We don't know how to move forward anymore. We don't know how to go from a life of prayerlessness into a life of prayerfulness. So we don't know how to get from point A to point B. So today, I just want to talk about these. If we're going to ever make this move, we need to be really honest with where point A is, right? Right? We need to identify the hurdles that exist for us right now at this point if we're ever going to move to point B to a life of prayerfulness. So I have listed three hurdles that I think hamper us in our prayerfulness. So hurdles to prayerfulness. Number one is distraction and noise. And you're like, dude's going to start talking about my smartphone, isn't he? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm actually going to spend quite a bit of time in this area because I believe it's important. I believe it's important because of this. I think that we've quickly become a culture that settles for trinkets and toys as our meaning in life and sacrificed mere relationships for mere connection that we have become busy at mastering the art of distraction. And in doing so, we are robbing ourselves of the kind of quality of life that God has sent his son here to give us. We escape our realities and our hardships in life by looking at our screens and our gadgets rather than opening up and talking about the struggles in our life to our God and to godly people and truly missing out on the blessings of living life together. We watch our screens and our gadgets when we're bored. We watch our screens and our gadgets when we need comfort. We watch our screens and our gadgets when there's silence or awkwardness. We watch our screens and our gadgets when our responsibilities are thought to be done as parents, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, bosses and employees, students and children. We have created this false busyness around our lives that lends us to believe that we don't have time to prayer. There's an interesting survey out by a group called Nielsen's. They're in charge of like the TV ratings. They're a leading researcher in the area of consumers and consumer behavior. And they have taken notice of this because they are selling this to businesses, because they are in this for profit, but they have done statistics on the amount of time that people spend in front of screens. They would tell you that the average American adult per day, get a number in your head, Let's play a little guessing game, how many hours a day do you think the American adult spends in front of a screen? don't have to tell me out loud. The average American adult spends 11 hours behind a screen a day, 11. And that's staggering if you realize we're almost only up for about 16 hours a day. Now some of that's attributed to work, but that number is staggering. And even more staggering if we understand in 2009, that number was eight. So in six and a half years, we have added three hours of screen time per day, Per person. It's crazy. So, knowing this, how can any one of us say that we don't have time to pray? Do we really wonder why we lack intimacy and closeness with the Father knowing this? We are so distracted by the things that don't mean anything. Movies and sports and binge-watching and texting and social media. We are finding our meaning and joy in the distractions of life. And here's the troubling thing. We are teaching this to our children. Kids between the ages of 6 and 16 now watch six and a half hours of screens a day. Kids under the age of six look at screens on average of two hours a day. And it concerns me greatly that my 19-month-old, who has a very limited exposure to technology, is drawn to screens and gadgets more than anything else I know. Now, is there a proper place for all these things? Yes. I'm not here to condemn your use of a smartphone. This is not an anti-smartphone message. We need to be careful because... We are becoming slaves to media, gadgets, and screens. And you may disagree, you may want to argue that point with me, but let me ask you this question, and I want you to be honest in it. How would you feel if somebody steps into your life and takes away all your screens, your smartphone, your tablet, your TVs? How are you feeling about that? You okay with that, or does that unsettle you a little bit? I'm not trying to talk down to you, okay? I know this struggle myself, but we have to listen to the warnings of Paul when he writes in Romans 6. He says, do you not know that if you present yourself as slaves, as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one who you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And listen, there is nobody on this stage that knows this struggle more than myself. I lack the ability at times to make good decisions about my time in a variety of circumstances. I promise you, if you could cut open this head and just project what is going on in my brain most of the time, you would be frightened at the disconnection of facts, puppies, pictures. It's everywhere, okay? I am easily distracted and easily go off topic. If I think of something, it comes in my head. So my smartphone was a drug for me. Everywhere I was, it was. And thanks, what's the weather in India? Didn't care where I was at, I'm looking it up. How much does a cocker spaniel weigh? Yep, I looked it up. Seriously, I looked these things up. It was a drug to me. And so my wife, a year ago, came to me. And she confronted me. Compelled to me what was going on in my life. And I am thankful. I'm thankful for a godly wife who pursues my heart. And God began to work in my heart something, a desire to move out of this. And so a year ago I I sold my smartphone and now I've got this beautiful little dumb flip phone here. It's called an NV2, and I'll I'll put it back in my pocket because I see you're being a little jealous about it right now. (laughs) I'm telling you, guess who went through withdrawal? (laughs) I did. Went through withdrawal fussy. I was irritable. Probably would not have liked to be around me. But I'm telling you, I'm a different person because of it. I am better at home. I have more clarity with the Lord. I have more time and focus in prayer. And I'm not telling you this stuff to say, well, good for you, Steve. Pat on the back. I'm telling you this to tell you that I was weak, friends. God stepped into my life and he drove it out. I'm not trying to sell you something up here. Getting rid of your your gadgets doesn't change your heart. It just becomes an act. If your heart doesn't desire this, it just becomes an act. If you're not doing this out of obedience, it's just an act. But don't expect to have success in prayer in your life if you're not first willing to give something up. You cannot add stuff into your life if you're not willing first to give something up. You have heard this from this pulpit before. You can add stuff in your life without being willing to give up something first in your life. So what are you willing to give up? If prayer matters, if you say this matters, I need to do this, that your desire is to grow in closeness with the Father, what are you going to sacrifice to make that happen? If we really want to have success at prayer... We have to be honest about where we're at and our level of distraction. And look, I do, not, I do not want you to feel condemnation from this platform. That is not my aim. Our God is gracious and able to redeem every single area of our life and hardship for his glory. He can do that. But we need to have eyes that are open to this. We need to have our hearts that will consider that this may not be in line with God's truth and his will for our life. We need to be honest and talk about this. We have to wake up, friends. Have to wake up. We are unknowingly allowing our kids to be victimized because of our apathy. And we need to be jolted in this because it matters. Second hurdle, we don't believe that we need it that we get this attitude that there are so many other things that are more important than prayer, that are more significant than prayer in our lives. And honestly, I understand that, quite frankly, it's very difficult to sit down, to kneel, to talk to a person that you can't touch, see, or feel. I know that. It doesn't work in our brains often that prayer comes out as the most productive part of our day. We don't see it as productive. We don't think that we get much out of it unless you know, we go to pray and we get that unexpected nap during the day. And, and maybe some of this attitude comes from the fact that we just, at the end of the day, don't believe it works. That we, in all sincerity, have brought requests to the Father that we had desires of our heart, that we thought we wanted desperately to go well. And they didn't. And our, our lives are marked by that. We're scarred by that. So we just don't believe it matters. And maybe it comes from the fact that we live in a very... Affluent society that's performance oriented in nature, where we work hard, we achieve, we buy stuff. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to have a, a bigger car or maybe some more clothes, but for the, the most of us in this room, we've got food in the pantry, more clothes than we know what to do with, we've got homes for our cars. We're very blessed. But what we do is, I don't think we communicate it verbally, but in our actions we say, well, I don't need God. There's no place for God in my life because I got what I need. Why pray? Why does it matter? What we do is we elevate the physical over the spiritual. The third hurdle is, I'll just do it myself. Oswald Chamber, he writes this, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do. But God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of, us, most of us would prefer, however, to spend our time doing something that will get us immediate results. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his own good time because our idea of, of good time is seldom in sync with his. This is an attitude that has plagued us for a long time. It plagues me that we are better off just doing this myself because I know how and what needs to be done. And what we do unknowingly is to communicate that, God, my way is better than your way. Until what happens? Tidal wave of chaos comes at us, and it's more than we can handle, and it drops us to our knees, and we pray for a season. And then when that trial ends, what happens? King me? King Steve again? My decision's right? My way? My life? I'll do it myself, God. We have to stop treating God like he's a spare cut. A spare tire and begin to see him as our steering wheel. So distraction, I don't need it. I'll just do it myself. These are three major hurdles in our life to prayerfulness. And I think it would be a good exercise for us to really consider which of these hurdles is our fight. Maybe for some of you, it's one. Maybe for others you in this room, it's all three. But we cannot win the war. And friends, this is a war. It's a war. This is a spiritual battle. We cannot win the war if we don't know what we're fighting against. And so we have to be honest and acknowledge our shortcomings. Can I just tell you a little truth? Nobody in this room is going to be surprised that you've fallen short. Nobody in this room is going to be surprised that you failed. We all fall short of the glory of God. So we humble ourselves before the Lord. We give this to the Father, and we move forward, fully believing that God is faithful to deal with this, and He loves us the same, today as He will yesterday, for those who believe in Christ. So we lay these things at the feet of Jesus, and we head towards a life of prayerfulness. And I want to give you just three thoughts, and they're basic thoughts, that will help you maybe to find some traction in this area. So moving from prayerlessness to prayerfulness. Number one, it has to be about grace-driven effort. As long as I get the pleasure to be in front of you, and, and this is a real pleasure for me, I want you to understand that. You will hear me say this phrase constantly. You can't fix you. You do not have that kind of ability or street cred to be able to fix yourself it will always be about you enable, God enabling you to walk in the grace and the love and his spirit. It's grace-driven effort. So what is grace-driven effort? I'd like to ex- kind of explain it this way. My 11th, when my, uh, when my daughter Camille was 11 months old, she was the best thing ever. Just get that out of the way, okay? She started getting confidence to walk, right? She got, she started pulling herself up on the furniture, looking all cute playing the game, like moving that foot forward like she's any time now. She's just going to take that step and just kind of teasing us. She's going to walk. And then pretty soon she just got really confident and let go. And then she took one step and (laughs) fell down. And what did you do? If you had, oh, (laughs) this is the greatest day ever, right? You recorded it. You told everybody you could about it. And then you celebrate, play, put her back up and try to get her to do the same thing. And then pretty soon it's like one, two, three, four, fall. One, And then she gets it, right? Do you think that any point in that journey of my daughter taking steps that I called her an idiot? Do you think at any point when Camille fell down I was disappointed in her? Absolutely not. What human being would it be? Grace-driven effort is about us communicating to the Father our heart's desire and saying, "Father, my heart yearns. I wanted to yearn to spend time with you daily. Will you help me in that?" And we move forward knowing this, that for us who believe in Christ, that his grace and his love and his compassion is consistent and constant with us, even though we may fail. And as we take one step forward, two step forward and fall down, God is right there to pick us up with his grace and his mercy and his love and say, I do not condemn you. I love you. Today, the same as yesterday. And it is that, it is that grace that welcomes us with each new start as we walk in this. It's grace-driven effort that brings us out of this life of prayerlessness into a life of prayerfulness. So we take this area, this this object of grace-driven effort, and we put it into the area of prayer. We communicate our heart's desire to the Father, and then we go, fully trusting that His Spirit and He is capable to bring us through this. And this kind of leads us to our second point. We have to be intentional. Cannot get around this. Like we have to be intentional. Nothing for gain was ever started without a little intentionality, right? So find a time, pick a spot, make a move. Friend, if, you, if we're waiting for God to come and just descend down on us and this overwhelming desire comes across us that we're going to go spend Hours and hours in front of the Father. If you're waiting for that, I'm telling you, you're probably going to be waiting for a while. Because here's the thing about prayer. God commands us to pray. I can't navigate around that. He tells us to pray, and constantly. But he also calls us to be obedient. And there will be times in your life that you will be obedient to the Father, or should be, not because you feel like it, but because he told you to. And that sounds really tough. Jesus says this in John 14. Anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My father will love him and he will come to them and make our home with him. Listen, we're not obedient for obedience sake. That's legalism. We're obedient because God loves us. We're obedient because he has a track record of being good to us. Not just to us, but generations before us. We are obedient for what he has done for us. I like to maybe liken this to my relationship with my wife. Now, do I always do things for my wife because I feel like doing them? Gentlemen, what do you think? Don't answer that publicly. Keep that in your head. No, I don't. What do I do? I love her, right? She has a track record of being good in my life. She loves me well. And so I do things for her not because I feel like them, because i should so here's just a few ideas in intentionality that uh, will help us maybe take uh, good starts with this jesus tells us in matthew 6 he says but when you pray go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you so find a spot One that lacks distraction and brings some privacy into your life. In my office, I got a little nook. I threw some pillows down there. I've got a bulletin board that I put the life care stuff up. Our staff prayer needs a couple things about prayer and vision and and culture and our church and some personal stuff. It's a great place for me to go because it's private. No one's going to bother me there. It's a good spot because I see it and it reminds me to pray. But we also notice that Jesus set some deliberate time for prayer. In Mark 1, it says, and rising very early in the morning, and I can already hear the groan. <sighs> While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Pick a time and start. This is, I know this is basic. Pick a time and start. Jesus prays in the morning here, but here's some good news. He also prays in the evening, he prays in the afternoon, and he prays at night. So pick a time and sacrifice that time and give it to God. Okay? So we find a time, find a spot, and we go pray. And this leads us to our third thought, is we just have to find some consistency in this area. We have to find some consistency. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not become weary of doing good. Let us not become weary in doing good. For a proper time we will reap a harvest if We do not give up. Place, time, and we go. Now we have to find some consistency. We actually have to continue doing this. And this is really difficult for us, right? It is for me. We are really good at starting things but not finishing those things. I would imagine the amount of projects and books as a whole, collectively in this room, that have been started and not finished would be a very staggering number. And I could probably take a lot of those, just to be honest. So if I could give you any wise words in this area, it would be this. Incremental success is better than grand failure. Incremental success is better than grand failure. Setting bite-sized, reasonable goals is far more productive in your life than trying to implement huge, sweeping changes in your life. So if you're somebody in here that doesn't pray, And you say, well, I'm going to go pray seven days a week and I'm going to carve out an hour and a half time to spend with the Lord a day. That is a very honorable and noble goal. But is that reasonable? Have some grace for yourself, my friend. God is not calling you to be perfect. He's asking you to take steps. It's a process we call sanctification. So maybe that time looks like it's four days a week, 15 minutes a day. And in those four-minute Four segments of 15 minutes a day. I promise you that if you you do those things, God rewards that stuff. And then pretty soon before you know it, because it begins to matter to you, you notice a difference in your life. Maybe that gets to seven days a week because it made a difference in your life. So present whatever it is that you desire in this area. Present it to God. Grace-driven effort to achieve it. And if I can give you just this, don't forget in this time of prayer to bring scripture into this. Nothing warms up the heart better than scripture. The word of God has the ability to change the way that we pray. It can take a prayer from a time of just listing needs that we need to a time where we just spend adoring, thanking, admiring, and then asking for requests. Don't forget to bring scripture into this. So grace-driven effort, intentionality, and consistency. These are the three pillars, I think, to really establish some momentum in our prayer lives. And I just kind of want to conclude our time with this. Look, this isn't, this isn't easy. You, you know that this isn't. I know that you, you know this isn't easy. Paul writes this. He says, labor with me in prayer. I think that's an interesting choice of words. He's, it's work with me in prayer. It's like the Like Paul knows that this is going to be hard for some of us. Work with me, labor with me in prayer, sweat with me in prayer. I fully believe this. I believe that God has called us to do hard things in life. We are far too easily people that settle. Well, this is just the way that I am, Steve. But I refuse to believe that God created us to live lives that settle for complacency and things of this world and not to pursue after godly principles and ideas. Is becoming more and more like Jesus hard? Yes, by any stretch of the imagination. It is worth it. It takes time and effort and sacrifice and sweat and tears. But we were called to be more than conquerors in Christ. We were not given a spirit of timidity and fear, but one of power, love, and self-discipline. The Christian's life is to be marked by prayer. But if you leave here today and you want to pray because Steve told you to pray, I promise you it's going to lack the kind of effect that you want it to in your life. What is your end game in this? What is your end game? What is the desire of your heart? Do you want to pray because you should? Maybe that's a good place to start. Are you going to pray because you want a deeper, more intimate relationship with the Father? Are you going to pray because you hope maybe you get what you want? Or are you going to pray because you're going to ask the Father to change your heart to fully understand what you need? Eugene Peterson writes it this way, that prayer is a refusal to live as an outsider to my God and my own soul. Prayer is a refusal to live as an outsider to my God and my own soul. It's time that we stop living like foreigners in a created world by a personal God and submit ourselves to his good and right design and his authority and humble ourselves and pray because it matters. Because it matters. Let's pray. Father, will you just hear the pleas of our hearts, Lord? Will you just, will you wrestle with this, with us? We invite you to wrestle our, in our hearts with a desire to pray. God, will you increase our desire. And Father, will you give us the strength and the boldness and the courage to say no to the things in our life that we need to get rid of. And God, will you give us that same strength and boldness to walk in grace-driven effort towards you as we look to conquer an area of prayer in our life. We love you, Father. and We pray this in your awesome name. Amen.